You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics, and today is no exception. Today we are taking a good look at atheism. What is it? What does it entail? Is it really a reliable worldview? Is it a justifiable worldview? Well, to discuss those, I've brought on uh, Dr. Stephen Parrish. He has an AA in liberal arts from Schoolcraft College, a BS in biology and chemistry from Eastern Michigan University, an AMRS in library science from University of Michigan, an MA in philosophy from Wayne State University, and a PhD in philosophy from Bears. Where he's currently a philosophy professor at Concordia University in Ann Arbor, and he's recently written a book called Atheism, A Critical Analysis. So we're going to be talking about that book today. Dr. Parrish, welcome to the Deeper yes. Waters podcast. Excuse me? Welcome to the what? Deeper Waters podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm sorry. I'm, I had my hearing aids in, but I'm still not really great with hearing. It's so. all right. It's all right. Um, if my audience doesn't know much about you, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? That's a long story, but yes. Uh, born and raised here in Michigan. Um, born in a Christian family. Interested in science mainly, and it was a lot of science fiction when I was young. But then when I got to be in my late teens going to college, I realized just how strong and ferocious the attack on Christianity was. Um, and my interests began to switch over to apologetics and philosophy. Mm-hmm. I met a, uh, at Schoolcraft College, a uh, uh, liberal arts college, a uh, community college near here, um, one of my professors, Walter Lockhart, introduced me. He was a Christian, and he introduced me to various things. Uh, he introduced me to the philosopher Borden Parker Bowne, who nobody ever hears of before, but was actually very instrumental in uh, giving my, my um, uh, learning how to do apologetics and philosophy. Anyway, um, graduated, ironically, with degrees in biology and chemistry, because I haven't done much with them ever since, uh, I did work in a, a chemical factory for a long time, uh, making chemical films. Uh, I get, then got a, tired of that. I got a, I got a degree in library science. This is all very roundabout, you see. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could not get a job in it. So I went back and worked in a chemical factory in quality control for 10 years. In the meantime, I decided that I really, what I really should do is do philosophy. And so I went I went part-time at Wayne State University while working full-time plus in the quality control, finally getting a master's in 84 and a PhD in 91. My doctoral dissertation was uh, necessary being in the theistic arguments where I gave my, developed my argument for God that I actually have in this book, too. Mm-hmm. It, was, uh, it was not easy. In fact, I thought of, it was sort of a miracle I made it through all this. 
Well, all, all on my dissertation committee, uh, three out of the four were atheists. The other fourth, the fourth guy was from another department. Uh, the uh, head of my dissertation committee was Dr. Bruce Russell, who's still there, mm-hmm. who is a firm atheist, although he's a friend of ours. And uh, he's, uh, even though he disagreed with me, he gave me the doctorate. I then got a job because I had a library science degree and a PhD in philosophy at William Tyndale College. Stayed there till 1991, got out because of problems with the president. And uh, anyway, it closed by 2004, that closed down. I went to Concordia, again, working in the library and uh, work teaching philosophy. Uh, eventually, uh, about six, seven years ago, I was made full-time philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I've been in Concordia for the last 20 years. Okay. Um, is that too much? or <laughs> Nope, that's just fine. You know that better. That person who uh, was influential, Borden, I think. Borden Parker Bowne. He was a Boston uh, personalist. He, uh, he was a Methodist and a theist, well, pretty obviously, a very feisty theist, and he introduced me to things like metaphysics and epistemology. He was a, nobody's heard of him to these days, hardly, but he was a very current Christian apologist back in the 1800s, died in 1910. Yeah, I was thinking, I've never even heard of him. Uh, maybe my friend Tim McGrew has heard of him, but I hadn't. Mm. Yeah, but he was instrumental. But then after that, I was introduced to all sorts of philosophy, mm-hmm. philosophers and apologetics. It became mm-hmm. an obsession with me. Uh, when I was at Eastern, becoming increasingly concerned about the state of the world and how it was being secularized and the relentless attack on Christianity from all sides from all issues i remember standing in a line in the snow in easter for registration and thinking it just came to me that somehow i was going to write three books one arguing for god from basically a bounding argument then another one arguing for the mind that is not just material and a third arguing for the objectivity the absoluteness of ethics that depends on god and mm-hmm. um so that was back in the 70s uh, did it really happen that way? Probably not, but that's the way I remember it. Mm-hmm. And I have two of the books published, and I'm working on um, the third right now, very slowly. Uh, the book, Atheism, well, my wife suggested I write that. And I put th- those three uh, issues into uh, to a chapter, plus mm-hmm. some other stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, what what led me to your writing this book, Atheism, A Critical Analysis, ever then? My wife suggested I do it. I'm sorry, could you say that again, please? What led to your writing this book, Atheism, A Critical Analysis, other than your wife suggesting you do it? Well, basically, um, because atheism is spreading uh, in our culture, our culture has been totally secularized and has had disastrous results. Mm -hmm. I realize, of course, that intellectual issues are not the only matter here. Um, but, I mean, there, there, let's face it, there are a lot, of, there's mm-hmm. a lot of good apologetics out there, philosophically, historically, mm-hmm. scientifically. But I wanted to get at the heart of the issue. Uh, since I'm a philosopher and haven't done much with uh, science for the last ooh, 40 years or so, I wanted to be philosophic. That's my area of expertise. And I didn't want it just to be a repeat of um, other things. A lot of people are doing good things with things like the finding tune, tuning principle, you know, the, of, the, of, the universe, of the universe. But I, mine was philosophic. Um, and I wanted to reach people, ordinary people, you know, normal people rather than philosophers, mm-hmm. just to give them the idea that, no, philosophy does not support atheism. 
It supports theism. The mm -hmm. fact that, in fact, that the atheism is so widespread has a lot of non-rational factors in it. You know, I, uh, I th go ahead. I, I think that's interesting because usually, whenever I encounter atheists, it seems they do what I kind of call presupposition or atheism. I totally agree. Atheism is the de facto rational position, and if you disagree, you are irrational automatically by default. Right. That's the way a lot of them think. They've been sort of brainwashed, however, by the idea that atheism is rational and theism irrational, and the idea that uh, faith just means blind belief without any reason has mm -hmm. been very uh, destructive in this manner. Uh, I want to point out, I mean, Again, there's more to it than just people reading and considering rational arguments, but that is a part of it. It's an important part of it. And I'm, I'm just trying to reach normal people and Christians to reassure them and atheists to even read to rethink their ideas. Mm -hmm. um, I also, and this is part of the book that, I, that has been, uh, mm -hmm. why is this happening? Why is all this happening? Why are all these bizarre things out there? Why, is it li why are eliminative materialists getting a hearing? Eliminative materialists, I wish they had a simpler name, uh, have the idea that there is no consciousness. Nobody has any beliefs. There are no, you know, uh, sees red or chase chocolate or anything like that. Why are insane IVs like this accepted? Maybe not all uh, followed by that much, but not considered to be completely nuts. Mm -hmm. um, what is going on here? And it's a spiritual revolt. Mm -hmm. right? And this is where I read people like Vogelin and others, Molnar and others, who basically talk about the spiritual revolt we have going on. You oh, just no. released the picture. Mm -hmm. Nick? Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, I I'm still here. Don't don't worry about the, the camera. Okay, because my wife is fooling around. She thought you we'd lost you. Nope. Um, and so that's, and then reading Rodney's start, that, that was Appendix 1. Mm -hmm. The idea that human beings, some of them anyway, want to be little gods and create the world of their own, rather than be creatures. They want to be gods. Mm -hmm. um, that's part of it. And also the last, that was Appendix 1. Appendix 2 is simply the uh, difference between atheism and theism in how it promotes a healthy life and healthy society. There I depended a lot upon Rodney Stark. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm not anyway. sure. I'm not sure if you've got to read it yet, but right now I'm kind of going through on Kindle. Richard Dawkins has a new book that's come out, Outgrowing God, and I'm going through and I'm thinking, this is really bad stuff. I mean, I'm not trying to be arrogant or anything, but I'm looking at I'm not even seeing anything that's making me blink a little bit here. It's all weak. But so many of our friends who are atheists will read this up and think, oh my gosh, this is just such an awesome, awesome takedown of theism and belief in God. Yeah, there's a great will to believe, or, you know, in a sense, a will to disbelieve. I did not even mention Dawkins or Hitchens or mm. Harris or any of those because, A, there's over 20 books already written refuting them. Yeah. And besides, from what I've seen, they're, they're pretty lousy. They stink. <laughs> they're <laughs> no good. I, I wanted to actually, you know, mm. interact with atheists who actually know what they're talking about. Yeah. You know? it, it's quite sad because I think if you look at the great atheist back from, say, when you were in college, people like Mackie and flew before he changed his mind and others, they would largely be embarrassed by atheism today. I think they would. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's embarrassing just to have to refute some of these silly ideas they have. Mm -hmm. yeah. Not to mention the just the blatant factual errors they, they make. 
Yeah. Well, when, let's start looking at your book here some more. Because one of the things I like that you do right at the beginning, which I think is always important, is you define your terms. Why is that so important? So people know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen arguments where people didn't define their terms and they spent a lot of time and energy and end up realize they didn't really disagree or disagreed didn't disagree in what they thought they disagreed because they didn't they didn't define the terms the same way. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. One of the favorite things that I like seeing you talk about is the term, and it's one that. I understand what you mean by it, but it's when I hesitate to use of supernatural. I just don't like using that term. And so when I encounter an atheist and they say, you believe in all this supernatural stuff, I say, oh, okay, could you tell me what you mean by supernatural? I'm really not sure what the term is, which I find to be an amazing thing because now they're having to talk about what the supernatural is, and they usually have such a very, very hard time doing it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, supernatural is not the best way to put it. I mean, if you want to talk about supernatural, just, well, it's not part of the natural physical universe. I mean, that's mm. probably the best. But it has all these weird connotations like ghosts and, uh, you know, mm. mediums and uh, Ouija boards and things like that. And they would rather stay away from, mm. you know, all this strange stuff. Yeah, I, I find I prefer to use the term extra material. Because okay. if they say something like supernatural, I'll say, okay, if you're talking about something that's not natural, how about triangularity? Is that natural? How about goodness itself? Is that natural? How about numbers? Are numbers natural? And since I'm a good Thomist, I can even say, how about existence itself? Is existence nat- supernatural? Yeah. Uh yeah, well, you're just, again, you're just dealing with a mindset that's just been sort of mm-hmm. accepted by a lot of people. A lot, including a lot of people really don't know what, what the issues are, or mm-hmm. the arg- and certainly not what the arguments are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like you said, terms can make people confused. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think they want to be confused. Mm-hmm. You also so, talk some of the start about what science is. So what exactly yeah. do you mean by science? Because science seems to be this term thrown around constantly, and at the same time it's also usually seen as, you know, the, the position that's consistent with atheism entirely. That if you're a good person of reason, you go with science, and because of that, where well, you have to be an atheist? Yeah, science, I just think of basically a sort of a systematic, rational investigation of the natural world. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's the natural sciences. Um, now, two of us in Shafton. And then, mm-hmm. the, uh, the you know, also the social sciences, mm-hmm. which does, do not seem to have the same prestige. Mm-hmm. Um Yes, it has a lot of prestige because they've done a lot of amazing things, understandably. But, you know, there are problems. And the thing is, a theist can certainly believe in science. Yes. In fact, science was invented by theists. Mm-hmm. In fact, I want to say that only theists really should have the right to believe in science because in brute fact universe, what the most naturalists have to believe, there can be no science. They're, they're living on terms that are borrowed from their opposition. Okay, let's take a little pause right there and discuss what you said there. What exactly is brute fact universe? All right, brute fact, all right, ultimately, you know, I have the, and put things simply, why is, does the universe exist in the manner that it does? Mm-hmm. Um, the atheist has two answers to this, and the interesting thing is, they're the exact opposite of each other. One is, everything is necessary, everything has to be that this way. With, you know, there has to be exactly, I have to exactly, this, the same amount of hairs on my head, 
Uh, and that has to be is necessarily the true in the same sense that two plus two equals four, and it's about everything in the universe. The other is brute fact, and that is much more popular today. But that is the idea that ultimately everything here and everything in the universe exists as a matter of chance. There's an infinite number of possible worlds. That's basically reality as it could have been. All right, one of them had to be real, even if it was a, rea- a reality where nothing existed. Mm-hmm. Giving all this, given atheism. All right. Um, Given that, um, one of them, just by chance, was actualized. One of the possible worlds, one of the ways reality could have been, was the one that is the actual world. Why, mm-hmm. rather than some other one, one you know, where people are you know, rich instead of so good looking or something, uh, it was just a sheer matter of brute fact. No mm-hmm. explanation. No explanation. No explanation, as my wife is... Uh, chance. Okay. Mm-hmm. All by chance. All by chance. All right. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, of course, if everything is here by chance, they, the atheist seems to have a lot of them. They have the idea. Well, yes, this universe is here by chance. It has a laws. It has by chance. But once the laws are in fact, they're going to stay here forever. And that is simply not mm-hmm. every single thing that happens, every event, everything at moment, every moment exists is surely by chance. And out of that, you're not going to get order. You're going to get utter chaos, if anything. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that's kind of odd since. So many atheists rely on Hume, who had said, you know, if you drop a rock a thousand times, that's not proof that once you drop it a thousand first time it's going to fall, it could fly off somewhere for all you know, because past experience can't determine future activities. And then, when he argues against miracles, it's the exact opposite. We have uniform experience, therefore that determines future activities. Right. Yeah, he's sort of contradictory there. Um, I don't know. Uh, personally, I think Hume is overrated, but yeah. you know, he's—I've read in a poll somewhere a, a few years ago—he was the most highly rated, a popular philosopher among philosophers, which I find it very depressing. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk a bit then about theism. What exactly yes. is theism? I mean, when theism, okay. Yeah. Uh, Theism is belief in God. Atheism, A in Greek, I don't know Greek, but what I understand is A means no. So mm-hmm. atheism means no Godism. Mm-hmm. Theism literally means Godism. There are many different kinds of theism. Some of them are compatible with naturalism. I mean, the idea that this universe is nothing outside our natural universe. Many Mormons seem to believe that God or the gods live in the universe. The theism I'm talking about is basically what my, I, I call it, Perfect being theism. Other versions uh, of it are um, classical theism. Um, and, well, anyway, they all have the idea as God of being infinitely perfect. There's, there's differences among theists about exactly how that to be worked out, but God is a personal being who created the universe out of nothing and sustains it in existence, all right, mm-hmm. and is working things toward a conclusion. Of, mm-hmm. Still there? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. he's working things towards a conclusion. Well, so in this universe, every, things happen for a reason, uh-huh. right? Things happen for a reason. Uh-huh. Um, I, I mean, there's not going to be a conclusion in the sect that everything is eventually going to go away. I mean, heaven mm-hmm. certainly isn't, but uh, yeah. uh, the universe, the, the creation of the universe, the creation of the human race, uh, the prophets, the coming of Christ, the church, everything is going, is working toward some sort, you know, toward a goal, purposefulness. Mm-hmm. God has purposes. Black brute fact theory, theory there are no purposes. 
Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I think I'm probably going to need to correct you on something here, because you said atheism is no god is. I mean, Dr. Parrish, don't you know atheism is just simply a lack of god belief? Well, yeah, that's... I mean, yeah, you say atheism, if you don't believe it, you don't believe in God. But the thing mm-hmm. is, of course, uh, if you have any thoughts on the matter at all, right, and to be rational, they have to, you have to have some sort of substitute for God. Mm-hmm. Why are things here? Why do things remain in existence? Mm-hmm. Why are things orderly, right? Why do minds yeah. exist? All, all, this, all this kind of stuff. Why, uh, if you don't, if you have, if you're thinking philosophically, um, you, uh, you have to have some sort of, alter, sort of alternative to God. And that, of course, is where the problem comes in. Um, does that answer your question, or you want me to expose, uh, expose it more? Well, I, what I said was a bit tongue-in-cheek. Oh, yeah. I, I agree with you entirely on what atheism, but I meet so many atheists today who will tell me, oh, atheism isn't saying there is no God. It's saying just that you lack God belief. Right. Well, again, you have to have some sort of alternative if you're going to be a rational mm-hmm. being, yeah. right? Why, why, you, why do moral values exist, if they exist? Why, well, I mean, obviously they exist, but are they objective there, or are they just sub- subjective men that people wake up, well, make up? Why, do, why does uh, the universe exist? Why ought to we do what we do, right? Why do their minds, right? Mm-hmm. I've never seen a, a, a materialist give a, anywhere close to a uh, good answer to why consciousness exists at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just... Yeah, it's sort of a cop-out. Just say, yeah, well, they lack God belief, but they have other beliefs, yeah. right? They have views on values. Um, how do they fit together? What is their worldview like? Yeah, the thing that strikes me is that if you just say atheism is a statement of, you know, lacking God belief, all you're saying is it's a statement of your personal psychology. So, right. what do you, I mean, if I said, oh, me, I, I have God belief. I don't need to give an argument for that. I just, I just believe that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that, that's why I get back to what you said earlier, this presuppositional atheism. Mm-hmm. A lot of them don't think they have to have any burden of proof, right? Yeah. They just, mm-hmm. if you don't believe in God, that's it, that's, that's acceptable, and all the burden of proof is on the theist, right? Right. And that that's not true, <laughs> to put it simply. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, for one thing, you know, if you're trying to try to try to give an explanation of things, you have to have an alternative to God, mm-hmm. and ultimately end up in uh, mm-hmm. pure logic or else chance, pure chance. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, they do have values. They often have opinions on what exists, uh, mm-hmm. um, what exists, or why what we should do, how society should act. Where are they getting all this stuff? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of them are people living in a cave. Mm-hmm. We have never had any thought except, you know, how dark it is. Right. And I definitely agree with you on the whole burden of proof thing, because regularly when I talk of atheists, I say, look, let's suppose, for sake of argument, I could not demonstrate theism to you, and you went through and demolished all my arguments and forgot and saw they were weak. That doesn't mean you've proven there is no God. All you've proven is... I had pretty weak reasons for believing he existed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's true. But, you know, talking to a lot of atheists, it's, I mean, I think sometimes I hear from Christians, basically, I, uh, or other religious people, the idea that everybody would really like there to be a God, 
But unfortunately, there just isn't enough evidence, so we just have to go with that, right? That's mm-hmm. not the situation, I think. I think there's a tremendous will not to believe in God today, mm-hmm. running amok through our society. Mm-hmm. The idea that they not only does not exist, it's good that he doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. I mean, having lived in academia for a long time, secular academia, I mean, the idea that they really wish there was a God, uh, no, they don't. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like the quote from Nagel at the beginning of the book. They don't want God to exist. They want God not to exist. Yeah. Right? That is very widespread. I think it's a little nuts, actually, but mm-hmm. I mean, that's, a, that's a very widespread a- uh, attitude. Yeah, we also need to talk some about the whole idea attitude for about how science works in this, because usually we're told everything has to be proven by the scientific method, but very rarely is it ever defined what the scientific method is, and I've read... For instance, in Newton's Apple and other myths, the idea that there is no one scientific method. There are scientific methodologies. There isn't one scientific method. So, right. There's kind of two things to play with. Right? The idea of a scientific method and the idea of scientism itself. Yeah. And scientism goes along with atheism and naturalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, not all atheists are, are scientists, but it's very widespread. Simply that either... Science is the only way to get truth, or else science is just vastly superior to any other way to get truth. Mm-hmm. Um, but which, by, both of which are, by, by the way, fi- philosophical statements. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but they, they never seem to know us that one. Yeah, my friend Gary Habermas, who I've known for 39 years, oh, I believe yes. you know him too, right? Yeah, um, he, he kind of, I owe a lot from him, he kind of introduced me to my wife, so that's a big thing. And, and married uh, us, by the way. Oh, that's good, I didn't know that. All mm-hmm. right. Yeah, he, he said, he, he told me once that he was uh, in London debating an atheist, and uh, and the guy said, I believe in science, that's all. If it's scientific, I'll accept it, but it's not scientific, you know, we, we don't, I don't accept it at all. And Gary pointed out, well, that's not a scientific statement, right? That's a philosophical statement. And the guy reportedly said, well, I never thought of that before. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, a lot of these people are intelligent, but they're not really doing a lot of deep thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's kind of strange. Mm-hmm. And the, when you talk about, and when we talk about the history there behind the two, it's if you read someone like say Richard Carrier, you get the idea that there was this huge dark ages time, and people didn't care about science whatsoever because religion ruled the world. And then, lo and behold, here comes the Enlightenment, and all of a sudden the clouds are open, and we start doing science, and we actually start learning things. Thank God, but. Well, hypothetically, we got free from the shackles of religion so we could start doing science. Yeah, and that's totally false. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not, not just what I think, but that's what historian, mainstream historians think now, mm-hmm. that the roots of modern science were in the Middle Ages. Um, I just read a book, just finished it, reading of the New Atheist Denial of History but by somebody I never heard of before, somebody named B. Painter, uh, and basically goes through that and just how badly these people... Um, misdirected people. Now, these are the new atheists like Dawkins, you know, and Hitchens and stuff. Uh, I, but a lot of, you know, a lot of more people are reading, a lot of more atheists are reading Dawkins and Hitchens and stuff, unfortunately, rather than good atheists, in a sense, like Mackey or, or you know, flu before he converted. People mm-hmm. used to know what they have some idea what they're talking about. But it's totally false. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever read the book by James Hannum, The Genesis of Science? Not only have I read it, I've interviewed him on that book, on the show, and I've also interviewed Tim O'Neill, people can go back and read, an atheist, 
amateur historian, actually, who debunks this whole Dark Ages myth right. regularly. So both of those have been on this program before for listeners who want to go back and find them. Yeah. I just, a, few, a week or so ago, I ran into uh, Neil's, uh, O'Neill's website, mm-hmm. History for Atheism, where he does a great job of debunking a lot of the things that are out there but widely believed by atheists. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's really good, you know, mm-hmm. because they might listen to him more than they would uh, me or you. But yeah. um, but again, it's it's not so much that the you know the stuff is out there. All you have to do is read it, mm-hmm. really. And but the stuff is out there, and I think again, it's not so simply they don't believe, but in many many cases they don't want to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, of course, is another problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I I honestly think a lot of it has to do with the way that theism will interfere with one's personal life, and to be as blunt as I could especially when it comes to interfering with your sex life. Yeah, well, I know. And I've had that admission by a couple of uh, a couple of atheists, including one of my professors, uh, who was uh, basically at, at Wayne State, all of the uh, full-time faculty in the philosophy department were atheists uh, or agnostics, except for one guy who was, uh, he was a Quaker, but a very liberal Quaker, Dr. Angel, <laughs> appropriately enough but he was because he was agnostic in the sense that both either could be true although he did believe in some sort of god but one atheist you know most of them were very polite and professional but one atheist mm-hmm. was just absolutely militant um and i asked him and he basically said because well i won't get into the details but he didn't want to mess up on his sex that was one thing mm-hmm. they don't have the idea of authority they don't want the idea that uh you know you can tell them things you don't have to, you can't do that or you shouldn't do that mm-hmm. uh, it's sort of a Sort of a you know I don't juvenile juvenile rebellion gone into way longer than it should have. Hi, this is Jay Warner Wallace. If you're a fan of clear thinking and of being able to make the case for what you believe as a Christian, to be able to make the case for truth, well, this is a great place to learn how to do that. This is Deeper Waters with Nick Peters. Nick has a number of great guests on his show, and I've been just honored to be one of those guests. So if you want to carve some time to be able to become a better Christian case maker, this is the way to do it right here at Deeper Waters with Nick Peters. I encounter a number of people who used to be Christians in their words and are now atheists, and so many times it becomes entirely predictable. I just say, look, all you've done really is change your mindset or change your mind. That's all. Your mindset stayed the same. You went from being a Christian who didn't think much about what you believed and just believed everything you were told, and now you're an atheist who doesn't think much about what you believe and you just believe everything you're told. The only... thing you change is your loyalties that's it yeah and it's yeah and it's frustrating mm-hmm. uh again uh, i don't want to so i mean i was treated very well yeah by um the faculty at wayne state getting my ma and phd they're all very professional yeah and uh, gave me they gave me uh, my my okay my doctoral dissertation even though i said i had a really good argument for the existence of god so uh this is better than the um um average atheist or meet on the street corner so to speak or more likely on the internet um but uh even so you could tell there's this resistance it's not just that they don't believe in god they really don't want there to be a god and Mm -hmm. i've always found this baffling to be honest but now one of the popular arguments you deal with in the book is what people talk about they say well you know you're an atheist when it comes to four and Zeus and Odin and all these others, 
I just go one god further. Why is that not convincing to you? First of all, I'm not exactly sure what it's supposed to prove. Mm-hmm. Is everybody required to believe every god that anybody ever dreamed up? I mean, right. But, but the thing is, the theistic god, the god of Christianity, the god of perfect being theism or classical theism, uh, is different than Zeus or Thor or you know, or even the Mormon god mm-hmm. because those are all those are beings, powerful, immortal beings according to you know the mythology living in the universe. Right, the Christian God created the universe out of nothing, holds in, it holds it in uh, in existence, and is infinitely perfect in all respects. That's a lot different. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, yeah, we we yeah, you say, well, if you don't believe in every God, you're an atheist. That that's kind of silly because uh, yeah, because like I said in the book, there would be atheists who don't who believe that the universe exists on its own, uncaused, just by brute chance. On the other hand, there are atheists who believe that there was a God who created everything and explains in existence and gives us commands and created human beings and things like that. Uh, but they're both atheists. That, that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. It's such a silly argument. I, I often give a parallel of imagine if you were in a courtroom and you heard a defense attorney stand up and say, Ladies and gentlemen of the jury and people out there watching, we all believe many people in this room did not commit for murder. I just ask that you look at my client and go one person further. Yeah, that's good. I like that. I'll remember that by coming to again, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing is, well, these people never commit murder, so this person did commit murder too, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's just, all these other gods exist, so your god doesn't exist either. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just silly. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Sorry. Okay. Now, you did talk a little bit about faith, and I think that's something we need to push on. What exactly is faith? Because, you know, if you read Internet Atheist today, and especially if I jump to Hebrews 11, 1, they'll say, see, faith is believing something without evidence. Well, that's not exactly what Hebrews 11 says. Mm-hmm. Um, being unseen is not the same, not exactly the same thing as not mm-hmm. having evidence. But the Christian... Faith has, I'm using the word, the, uh, Christianity, most Christians have never said you have to believe for absolutely no reason. The idea that the reason is part of what comes in uh, coming to Christ is, I think, true for many, if not most people. Um, mm-hmm. The thing is, you know, faith means more than one thing. The idea that blind faith, believing for no reason, is not the standard or the most fundamental view of faith. I think the main idea of faith is simply... Um, Crusting or maybe commitment or, or confidence in what you what you believe, mm-hmm. and well, again, you know, if you have faith in your auto mechanic, I say this in the book, you probably have him because you had the car in there several times and he fixed it well and didn't charge you you know an arm and a leg to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that is, you have faith in him and you have it for good reason, mm-hmm. and I think there are all sorts of good reasons for believing in God and Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for all interested, sometime soon we hope to have back on the show uh, Dr. Matthew Bates. He's got a new book out, Gospel Allegiance, and he does go a lot into the definition of faith in this from the perspective of a New Testament scholar, so be on the lookout for that. So let's get further into the book. You talk about definitions and ideas of existence, and something that amazes me when I talk to atheists, they want to know so much about, well, give me an argument that God exists, and yet they don't think about very much about what does it mean to exist? Yeah. 
Well, that's a good question, and that's something talked about by philosophers. What exactly does it mean to exist? I guess one fundamental thing is it, it, it can it, uh, something exists causes or can cause other things. It can be it can act interact with other things in existence. Of course, um, <laughs> that gets down to the problem of uh, what existence is. Uh, in, a, in a sense, existence can't be explained in terms of anything further. It's a primitive term. But how something exists, you know, like my cat exists, is because she can do things like climb all over the chair and, and mm-hmm. things like that and knock things over. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I, I do have to say that is something I really liked about you, Brokers. I could tell, like me, you're a great cat lover. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, we, are, we had a cat here just, uh, we had her for a long time. She died in April. We just got oh. a new one. We're just trying to break her in or maybe she's trying to break us in. So... <laughs> She's trying to break you all in. You, yeah. she, she's the owner. You all are the residents who just live there. Yeah, well, that's what we basically we, we we're her servants. I think yeah. that's the idea that cats have. Mm-hmm. So, in ancient Egypt, they were treated as gods, and they have never forgotten this. Yep, <laughs> they have never forgotten it. So let's start getting into the the idea of theism and what it entails. If you were to give a basic brief definition of theism, what would it be? Well, there's different kinds of theism, but I would say theism is a being that exists, the, the kind of theism I talk about, the Christian theism, is a being who exists outside of the natural order, is personal, all right? Is not just an impersonal force. A personal being has knowledge and will and actions and feelings and things like that. Um, in the case of God, who creates and sustains everything else in existence, that that of course is, uh, I think, classical or perfect being theism. They're not that that those are exactly the same terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're going to talk about other things, like the Mormon God, I mean, I talk about this. Is the Mormon God really a God? Because I've heard some people, the Mormon God is actually a so a, be, a man with superpowers who lives on another planet. Right? He's Superman. Um, Superman, yes. He's up there on the planet Kolob with his wives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, But you know, he's immortal and all-knowing and all this kind of stuff. I have a hard time saying, uh, believing that with, well, for several reasons, mm-hmm. that if, he's, if all he is is just a man, a highly developed man, they could actually, say, for example, have omnipotence or omniscience. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, the Mormon God is a being who lives within the universe and cannot affect the laws of it. He just knows how to use them much better than we do. I said, is that really God? Well, it's sort of a, it's sort of borderline, but I said yes, because, you know, it does include things like God doing things for us in a life after death. Um, again, you have to draw the line somewhere, and it's very hard to draw. I mean, religion is very hard to define. Yeah. And God is sort of hard to define. Um, the idea of God, gods is kind of hard to define, too. Mm-hmm. But what are some of the key traits you see going on in most forms of theism? And I'd say especially the three big Abrahamic theisms. Yeah. Well, there's a difference between, I think, uh, Judaism and Christianity on one hand and Islam on the other hand. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Islam is Abrahamic in a sense, but it comes, you know, it comes out of Arabia and has different ideas. Um mm-hmm. Christian Judaism and Christianity, I think, have pretty much the same idea of God: the external, the original being, the Ur being, the being you know, Obama, which everything else is built. Mm-hmm. Christians, of course, add the idea of the Trinity, yeah. right? Uh, Muslims, well, you know, again, 
if you go through the history of philosophy and theology, you just find out there's more disagreement than you may have thought of in the first place. Mm-hmm. But uh, is, Muslims seem to believe that, well, in contrast to Christians, Christians believe that human beings are in some sense made in the image of God. Islamic theology, from what I've read, holds that human beings are not at all like God, that in fact we can't know anything about God other than his will. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a book on the subject called The Closing of the Muslim Mind by a man, I think it's uh, Richard Robert Riley. Riley, yeah. And he talks about that. Um, th- there's, a, there's, a large, there's a large difference, I think, between Islamic and uh, and Christian and Jewish, Jewish ideas of God. Mm-hmm. Although, again, the, uh, all, there's all one ultimate God, and God is creator of everything, and, and gives us the rules how to live, what to live, and so on. Mm-hmm. That's common to all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, it's my understanding of it. If you looked at some, like say, big arguments for theism in the time of Aquinas, you could could Aquinas, you could have a uh, Averroes, Maimonides, and Aquinas all in the same room together, and they disagree on many things. But you look at the classical arguments or theism, they'd say, yeah, we're all in agreement that these arguments right. work. Yeah, I just, yeah, I, I'm not really sure because I'm not an expert on it, but yeah, th- there is, again, because the, Mus- the Muslims do accept the Jewish Bible, or at least or the Christian Bible, although they, at least they say they do, uh, and they do believe in one God, they are monotheists, very stri- uh, strict monotheists. In fact, they, of course, cruise, cruise Christians of not being monotheists, because we're Trinitarians, mm-hmm. and they believe that God, you know, God has sent prophets, that Jesus was a prophet, and all this kind of stuff. So there's a lot of similarity. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, and what God exactly is, um, maybe there's different. Of course, there's been difference between Christians exactly how think of God too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there's a difference between classical theism and uh, a little bit of perfect being theism, and, the, and this is the whole thing about simplicity. Yeah, is God absolutely simple? Is simple, and what does that mean? And that's a very difficult issue. <laughs> that yeah. is a very difficult difficult issue to get at. Um, my first book that I published, my own God and Necessity. This is I published this in '97. It's a much more a longer technical version of what you get in Chapter Four uh, on God. Uh, it, I say God and Necessity: A Defense of Classical Theism. It probably would have been better uh, to say a defense of perfect being theism. So that was a mistake on my part. Uh, but mm-hmm. still. For the most part, we all believe that God is omnipotent, omniscient, all benevolent, you know, one, unified, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I'm sure you can imagine it as a Thomas. I do happen to take a hard line on simplicity and favor that one very, very yeah. much. But I, I do know there are many Christians out there who don't take such a hard line on simplicity like I do, and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, and that that's that would be getting really technical if we were to talk about that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and this is something that uh, you know most Christians never, uh, ordinary Christians never give a thought to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, anyway, could, could, yes. could be a bad thing though, since it could probably help most of us ordinary Christians if we did give a thought to that kind of thing. Yeah, it probably would. Um, mm-hmm. You know, again, this is trying to give some of this stuff to normal people who do not read philosophy books and things like that mm-hmm. is one reason why I wrote Atheism, a Critical Analysis and try mm-hmm. to get it down in non-technical, not verbiage. My wife, you know, who, my, my wife is a medical doctor and she's really smart and highly educated, but she didn't have much in the way of philosophy before she met me. And she went through here and tried to make everything, um, she tried to make everything so that normal people, 
the intelligent layperson, so to speak, would understand it. Um, because she, it would, she did very well ahead. at it. Excuse me? She did very good at it. Okay, thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you. But I've blamed, um, I, I give uh, credit to my wife. Mm -hmm. uh, again, it was her idea originally to write this book, and she edited it. Her mother-in-law, my mother-in-law, came down from Duluth, because her in-laws lived in Duluth, and came down and went through the manuscript and checked every quote and went through everything. Um, they stayed up, did this for hours and hours. I think they actually enjoy it, weirdly enough. But, uh, um, but yeah, to make the book uh, legible and, uh, well, good in every way. Uh, sadly, my mother-in-law died two years ago, Aww. so the book is partly uh, dedicated to her. But she mm -hmm. did a lot of work along with my wife in trying to make it legible, mm -hmm. intelligible. That'd be a better word. So now let's start getting into the. We we can define this being all we want, but defining him doesn't show that he exists. So let's get into looking at the arguments for his existence, Finn. And one you start with is the universe. Because as we know, if you want to make an apple pie, you must first create the universe. Yes. How did God make the universe? Are you asking? Yeah, more asking, what does, I mean, it's not asking how, of course, since we don't know how, and he did, but kind of like, how is it that the universe, the existence of the universe, points to God at all? Well, A, the fact that it exists, B, mm -hmm. the fact that it stays in existence, C, the fact that it's orderly, right? It's, mm -hmm. um, and then you get into scientific arguments like the fine-tuning argument, such that the laws of uh, nature have to be so, so very narrowly defined so that, uh, you know, complicated living things like human beings or cats can exist in it. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are just some of the things. Um, I mean, you could also talk about the beauty of the universe. Why mm -hmm. is every, almost everything beautiful? Mm -hmm. I mean, have you ever, really thought about that? The sky is beautiful, the water, the ocean is beautiful, the forest is beautiful, the meadow is beautiful, the mountains are beautiful, right? Even the desert is beautiful. Almost everything, everything mm -hmm. is beautiful. Um, why is that the case? Why do, we have a, why do we have a feeling of beauty at all? Now, that, that's just one one another thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think it's interesting. I'd like to really get back to beauty soon, but one thing I'd like to touch on right quick since mission is we often talk about how the uh, universe came to be and think that's a key argument, but you also added in the current existing of a universe. How does it stay in existence? And this is a very key argument also, isn't it? Yes. I mean, and I have no... Uh, this is not meant to be an uh, attack on the Kalam argument or William Craig or anything mm -hmm. because I think that's an interesting argument you know how did the universe come into existence but from a logical point of view the point is simply why do things keep on existing is as much a question as why do they come into existence in the first place right mm -hmm. because why well yeah. take your average thing like a like a well uh, a neutron or a proton like I, I call him Bob they've been talking about this you know use this example many times um named after a, man, uh, a friend of ours named Bob. <laughs> but anyway, Bob exists. But Bob exists at time one, and then five seconds later, Bob still exists. Why? What is the reason Bob exists? Does he have a reason for himself? With it? Is he, uh, no, because if he did, if the reason for his existence was eternal to Bob, Bob would be a necessary being. But obviously he's not. Right? He came into existence and go out of existence. Well, can it be for no reason at all? Well, maybe, but then, if, you know, why, if time one, he exists for absolutely no reason, just a you know irrational splurge in the universe. Why does he keep on existing all the time after time? 
And the same can be said for every single thing in existence. Why? They don't have the reason for the existence for themselves. And they, it, to say that it all happens for, by sheer chance for no reason at all is just kind of silly. Um, and therefore, there must be a reason external. Mm -hmm. A necessary being who has a reason for his existence analytically contained in the concept. And that, of course, is God. Mm -hmm. And I talk a lot that, about, about, about that more in my first book, God and Necessity, but I do touch on it some in an atheism. You're listening to the Deeper Waters Podcast. We've got a Dr. Stephen Parrish here talking about his latest book, Atheism, A Critical Analysis. But if you're here next week, it's going to be closer to Halloween, our last episode before Halloween, and we are going to be talking about some stranger things this Halloween. Particularly, Stranger Things, the hit Netflix series. My wife and I are huge fans of it, and doing some searching, lo and behold, I found a book, The World Turned Upside Down, Finding the Gospel in Stranger Things by Dr. Michael Heiser, who has been on the show before. He's going to be returning, and we're going to be talking about Stranger Things. And for our concern, my wife might even be interested in joining us in on that interview. So if you like Stranger Things, come back here next week. Yeah, And I'm guessing you might be more favorable in this area than to arguments from people like, say, Edward Fesser and others like that from a much more classical, Thomistic perspective that... It's not the beginning of the universe that matters. It's the existing of the universe that matters. Yeah, well, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, in a way, both of them matter. But yes, mm -hmm. I think the existence matters more because, you know, how, well, however long the universe has been in existence, it needs, a, it needs to have a reason why they say it's in existence. Yep. And it has no reason for itself, within itself. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Now, you, yeah. Talk, you talk some about beauty, that's important. And this is an argument I think so many Christians seem to miss. We really do not have much of a Christian idea of beauty today, do we? Yeah, I, I've never seen the argument develop much. Um, maybe it should be. I, it has been sort of by a man named David uh, Bentley Hart mm -hmm. in his book, uh, The Beauty of the Infinite. Mm -hmm. But he's not writing for normal people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Another one was, I think, a... a Oh, I can't even remember the name of it, um, and I can't remember the author. <laughs> uh, uh, it's down in my library somewhere, but basically talks about that. The idea that the fact is almost everything is beautiful gives us reason to think it was it was divine devised by somebody who or something devalues beauty. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I had to remember. <laughs> I can't remember it at the moment. Sorry. Well, I am looking, if anyone's interested, on getting John Mark Reynolds on the show sometime to talk about beauty from a Christian perspective and how beauty is an argument from God. We, we've made a call to his office, so we've got things in the works, so hopefully we'll be able to have him on sometime to talk about beauty 
from a Christian perspective. Okay. But yeah, I I I honestly think that beauty can be one of the strongest arguments for the existence of God, and I find it so incredible when I meet atheists who seem to outright deny immediately there is any such thing as objective beauty. I remember seeing a thread recently with someone talking about how apparently they're powder and they don't see, look at how beautiful these clouds are, and I didn't need any sort of God to know that. And I said, okay, let me just ask a question right off the start. Do you think beauty's objective? No. Okay, then what are you talking about here? Yeah. It purely, purely, if beauty is subjective, it's nothing more than some people like vanilla better than chocolate, and some people like chocolate better than vanilla. Mm-hmm. I mean, but no, there's an objective beauty that we recognize or, or fail to recognize. The same with ethics, right? Mm-hmm. These are different modes or being. Mm-hmm. Um, they cannot, they are re- irreducible to anything else, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I, right now, I'm writing another book on, on meta-ethics, which I try and argue that ethics ultimately depends on God, but I'm also probably going to be talking some about beauty and the, and the same argument. You know, something else I'd say about beauty is that if beauty is entirely subjective, then if I sit at the dinner table and draw a stick man, that by itself has to be just as beautiful as the Mona Lisa is. Right. Or a pile of garbage, if you like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. And... I, I just really don't understand it. And then I usually like to give a, a killer blow to this kind of argument and say, well, if you really don't think beauty is objective like this, I hope you don't say that to your wife. Yeah. Well, you know, the same thing is sort of with morality. Mm-hmm. A lot of people hold morality is, is relative. There really is no objective morality. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they don't like the idea of torturing human beings or right, or animals or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it... it they have, they have, they have some sort of moral code where they operate on. You know, C.S. Lewis pointed this out a long time ago, right? In *Mere Christianity*, mm-hmm. um, these are definite, irre, irre, uh, undeniable, in my opinion, aspects of reality. And the explanation, what's the best? Uh, and the problem is, what is the best explanation for these? Mm-hmm. Right? And my mind is simply the God's mind is ultimately the things about which things like beauty and and uh, uh, ethics exists. Mm-hmm. You know, something also I think about your book as I'm saying a thing about it. I don't think you said much, if anything at all, about evolution. Am I no, right I with that? Try- Go ahead. Am I right with that? I did. I certainly said I'm trying to avoid the subject, mm-hmm. <laughs> basically because a I'm not an expert. Even though I studied biology 50 years ago, near I I tried to I it it. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an expert on the subject, and I don't want to mislead anybody. I have uh, I have certain doubts about the theory of evolution, but I'm I'm not being dogmatic here. I'm so uh, I, a lot of a lot is written on that, and that's fine. But uh, that's not what I do. To mm-hmm. be honest, it's just I'm just trying to avoid that whole thing. Yeah, I, I'm not faulting you for. It. I just think it's interesting because so many atheists I know look at evolution as if where that's the deal breaker and. Sadly, me, Christians are going on with that as well, that where if we can prove evolution happened, then God is automatically out of a job. Yeah, well, that's what a lot of people fail, think, but um, again, without getting into the uh, issue of evolution, mm-hmm. I think the arguments for God are more fundamental, mm-hmm. right? Uh, there's a vast amount of scientific evidence, uh, 
facts out there. How do you interpret them best? And of course, the fact, the thing is, more and more facts are being discovered all the time. And how do you put them all together? And uh, but the point is simply, even if work uh, evolution is to be true, um, then it would need God to exist <laughs> to happen mm-hmm. because only God can keep things in existence. Mm-hmm. Well, why that if it might be origin of the universe? Why does it have to be God? I mean, why couldn't it just be like say a big supercomputer or? some race of hyper-intelligent aliens or something of that sort. Why does it have to be God? Well, ultimately, I mean, yeah, you could you could conceivably argue that we are created by aliens, you know, uh, but then you have to, why do they exist? The other thing is you have to get back to the idea of a necessary being, all right? A necessary being, I ask this in a class all the time, what's a necessary being? And nobody seems to ever get the right answer at it. But a necessary being is simply something that has to exist. Mm-hmm. They say that, for example, if God is a necessary being, God's existence is necessary in the same sense that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is necessary. Mm-hmm. It can't possibly be false. God right. could not fail to exist. Right? He has to exist. He couldn't exist, fail to exist even if, you know, rather bizarrely, he didn't want to exist. Mm-hmm. And I think only the concept of a, well, it's like I could say perfect being theism or classical theism, because they're very close here, um, is that the ultimate being has God has has necessary existence included in his nature? Mm-hmm. All right, we do not. Right, none of it. Any of us could not have existed. Right, if your mm-hmm. parents had never met, you would not exist. Right, uh, and and uh, just to say the same thing: if God had not created the universe, none of us, none of these things would exist. But God has to exist mm-hmm. because He is the greatest possible being. Mm-hmm. And the greatest possible being has necessary existence. Right. Again, I talk about that extensively, but very technically in God and necessity. I tried to give a briefer uh, discussion in atheism. Mm-hmm. So let's start looking then at another category you've got here, and that's mind. Mind, yes. What, what exactly do we mean by mind? Because a lot of people, I think, when they hear mind, they think the brain. They're related, I'm sure, but are they the same thing? What I'm thinking about mind is simply our conscious self, right? Mm-hmm. You can call it a mind, you can call it a self, you can call it a soul if you want. I, by, by, what I mean by, by that is pretty much the same thing, that we are conscious beings, we have phenomenal consciousness. Right now I'm seeing red, blue, yellow, uh, brown, green, red, all over just in front of me, right? and I hear things, and uh, and all this kind of, that's phenomenal consciousness, and I have Subjectivity. I, I exist as a person. Right? I exist, and that's something different that, saying, for example, that Steve Parrish exists. And we have rationality, and we have in- rationality. We can think rationally about things. Intentionality. Our thought is about things. I can think about my cat, right? My thought is about my cat, or it's about you, or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. All these things exist. Mm-hmm. So there are philosophers out there, like the Churchlands, who say they don't. Or at least part of question, and I just think that this is just well. I just think it's absurd. I mean, it's obviously obviously consciousness exists. Consciousness has to exist in something. Thought requires a thinker. Now the question is, can this be reduced to matter or not? The majority of philosophers today seem to think yes, it can. I hold that it can't. Or mm-hmm. I mean, actually, now I think about it, there was a poll they did. Uh, several years ago, said 50% of 
philosophers were materialists. They believed that everything is ultimately matter. Uh, 25% were dualists. They believed there is matter and consciousness, and they cannot be reduced to each other. And the 20 other 25% didn't know. So um, dualism is a minority position, but I think historically it has been the position taken by well, every, almost everybody in Christian history, for example, and a lot of other people, too. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I think, if I remember correctly, but churches even have this bizarre thing they do where they don't even speak in terms of emotions or anything like that amongst themselves. They all speak in terms of, they speak in terms of, because it's a husband-wife team, they speak in terms of chemicals. Yes, because ultimately that's what they believe, all that we all that exists, right? That if you're if you're a consistent materialist, you have to believe that everything, or at least everything in the universe, is can be reduced to matter and motion. Right? Mm-hmm. That's the classical materialist position going all the way back to the atomists in, in, in ancient Greece. Mm-hmm. And you know, nowadays it's running amok. A dualist, such as myself, denies that you can reduce mind to matter. All right? Um, you know, for example, I have the thought. Shakespeare is wittier than Tolstoy, all right? I don't know if that's true or not, but just, if you are a materialist, you have to believe that thought is absolutely identical with part of my brain acting in a certain manner. Mm-hmm. And to me, that makes no, I, I can't even understand it, but there's a lot of other arguments, but mm-hmm. it, it just, initially, it just seems uh, very wrong. Honestly, when, when I hear of that kind of story, I just think, that must be a very interesting marriage to be in. <laughs> But the whole idea, what? when I hear about the, the way that the churchlands behave with not speaking, even at home speaking about, in terms of only chemical interactions, and such, I think that must be a very interesting marriage behind closed doors. I don't know how they do it. I mean, because obviously people like that live ordinary lives. Right? Mm-hmm. They talk to each other, they have emotions, they think about things, and they feel things, and, you know, they uh, have values and don't. But at all times, the same they believe that actually none of this really exists. This really can just be reduced to just matter in motion. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I don't know. So, what are some other good arguments for believing in some kind of dualism? I, mean, I think for me, that's the main ones we think of usually. And since, you know, Gary Habermas, you know this one very well. Near-death experiences are one of my favorite ones. Yeah. But what are some other arguments well, yeah. besides that? Well, there are arguments from near-death experiences, things. This is not something I've uh, uh, studied a lot. Mm-hmm. I know Gary, I've listened to him, and I have a great deal of confidence in Gary. Um, he's a really good guy, and he's mm-hmm. done, done a tremendous amount of work on this area. Um, I have not settled myself. Mm-hmm. Actually, when I was writing the book before this, The Knower and the Know, which is about the mind-body problem, mm-hmm. I talked to him about how I was almost done. On the conversation, he said, well, why aren't you including near-death experiences? Why don't you do all this stuff? Well, because I'm a philosopher, and I, you know, if I if I did that, I have to drop this and spend mm-hmm. years uh, rewriting it. I mean, I I just take what he says as to be as to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, mine is strictly philosophic. That's that's my training, and I try to stay with my areas of expertise. Yeah. So, what are some other arguments we can give though for dualism if we don't go with near death experiences? What do we have? Well, philosophically, I have several uh, in the book. Simply a Mm-hmm. That um, this gets a little technical, but um, that mind cannot be reduced to matter, right? Matter, you know. For example, mm-hmm. like I said before, if I have the thought that uh, 
if I have the thought that Shakespeare is wittier than Tolstoy, right? If you're a materialist, you have to believe what that actually is, is some way part of my brain acting the same way. Now, again, if they're this identical, if they're numerically identical, the ex exact same thing, they should have all the properties in common. I talk about Batman and, you know, uh, Batman and the secret identity of Bruce Wayne, right? If Batman is six foot two, Bruce Wayne is six foot two. If Batman is driving the boat, uh, the Batmobile to fight the Joker, so is Bruce Wade. If Bruce Wade is hanging out in stately Wayne Manor, so is Batman, right? They all have all the same properties, right? Mm -hmm. But the problem with it is the brain and your thoughts seem to hardly have any properties in common. Right. That's Another thing is the, the causal closure of the physical. I mean, this gets fairly technical. But a lot of philosophers, materialists, believe that the only cause of physical events is other physical events, right? Mm -hmm. And if you believe that, then your mind... Your thoughts, your beliefs have no effect on what you do. Mm -hmm. It's all just the bad fact that the way that your mind and your your brain are, that your brain, to be specific, is organized in a certain manner. You're in a certain environment and the laws of physics. Everything you can do can be fixed that way. So in other words, your brain is just like a computer. In that case, your thoughts, your, your, your mind, your, your beliefs, your desires and values have no effect on what you do. Mm -hmm. Besides the fact that it's just generally weird, the fact that if, if you take a Darwinian evolutionary approach to it, then the fact that your thoughts have no effect on your behavior would not be selected for, right? Would, mm -hmm. Because Darwin, you know, is, uh, mutation, natural selection, those things that help you survive are the ones that help you, uh, that the, the people, the creatures that have better things to help them survive are the ones more likely to survive and therefore reproduce. But if your thoughts have nothing to do with what, what you do, then there's no reason to think that they have anything to do with reality because they wouldn't be selected for. Mm -hmm. right? Now, God can make us that way, but I don't understand. You know, why, why would God just make us have, have all these beliefs and values and things that have no effect on anything? Mm -hmm. You understand what I mean here? Yeah. I give a lot more arguments in my book, The Knower and the Known, which is, believe it or not, 445 pages. <laughs> it took me 16 years to write. Um, mm. But yeah, the, uh, and there are there are other ones. You know, if, if materialism true, if materialism is true, there is no free will. Right. No free will uh, at all, really. We of are just machines moved around by by the by the fact that we exist in a certain manner, we're in a certain environment, and the laws of physics are such. Of course, right? there are some atheists who look and say, "Yeah, that's right. There is no free will. Get over it." Well, yeah, and that's what my uh, Dr. Bruce Russell, my dissertation advisor, a staunch atheist and a personal friend of mine, he said, yes, he's a hard determinist. There is no free will. Well, for A, there's two things. First of all, this is strongly counterintuitive. But even more, if it seems to have self-referential uh, uh, problems, simply in the sense that if there is no free will, then nobody chooses, in a sense, what to believe. What you believe is just caused by what's going on in your brain. And as I said, given materialism and the fact that Thoughts is uh, thoughts are irrelevant to the way you act. There's no reason they would be selected for. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they do that. You're right, but but again, you know, this this is one. This plays into something else I put up in the book. Naturalism, materialism, uh, atheism, and one says human beings are gods. We are the highest authority in the universe. We're the highest developed beings. We decide what's right and wrong, what goes. At the same time, we're just machines. Mm -hmm. Or machines like your uh, transmission are, or something, your can opener. We have no, you know, we're just matter moving according to certain laws. Mm -hmm. So we're simultaneously we're gods, and, and at the same time we're merely machines.
this is some sort of, sort of a tension at the heart of naturalist human uh, atheism. Yeah, but um, Dr. Parrish, I mean, you can have the brain get damaged in various ways, and whenever that happens, the mind seems to get damaged. So if mind yeah. was very separate from the brain, why would such a thing happen? Because I think the mind is dependent on the brain to a large extent. Mm -hmm. Richard Swinburne has just published a new book about this. I mean, you could, or for example, William Hasker, the mind could not exist without the brain. Um, but although he believes God will keep us in existence after the brain dies, yes, I mean, you don't have to, you know, anytime someone has too much to drink or taking some sort of drugs, it obviously affects the minds, right? The mind mm -hmm. is dependent upon the brain for, for existing in this world. If we were angels, and the angels apparently have no bodies at all, uh, we would not be like this. But we have to exist in this world, and therefore we are dependent upon the body and the brain for our activity in it. But mm -hmm. by the point is simply I'm saying they're not exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and how exactly though, does a mind and a brain interact? I mean, no one's been able to figure that one out as far as I know. So, no, that well, that, yeah, that's Descartes. Descartes, Rene Descartes, the founder of modern modern day uh, dualism, had a problem with it, and it came up with a solution that nobody thinks was any good. Mm -hmm. um, the fact is, of course, I don't know uh, exactly. Uh, yes, there is a mystery here, but there's a mystery about everything. But if God made everything somehow, right, mm -hmm. then God made our brain and God made our minds, then he could also make it that, that way they can interact with each other in certain ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not just... It's not just uh, that these things, again, uh, uh, an atheist believes that somehow consciousness rose, apparently for no reason, out of a brain for no reason, even though it doesn't, it doesn't do any useful work, mm -hmm. right? Um, but uh, if God made things somehow, right, then he made the brain and the mind to act inter interact with each other. And if you look at quantum physics, now quantum physics is not something I'm an expert at, and I trep uh, trep uh, step in rather, rather uh, timidly, but apparently... The, the way we decide to do things, the way we decide to measure it, has an effect on the way things are. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying, and there have been people have argued this, and I'm not sure I can follow all their arguments, but that the mind does have effect. We can measure the fact that the mind, the observer, does have an effect on the reality. That the mind, that quantum physics allows us to do this, although, and this is speculative and it take a lot of working out, but mm -hmm. there is that possibility, which, which was not available to Descartes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, if this is the way things are, if these arguments seem so persuasive, why is it, do you think that theories that are opposed to this reign in the academy? Well, several reasons. First of all, they're taken for granted by a lot of people. That's If you want to be in, if you want to be in with the cool people, so to speak, you accept this. You're an atheist mm -hmm. or agnostic, you're a materialist. I mean, and a lot of, you know, a lot of people go into the academy, they want to get along. Deeper reason is they're fanatic. Well, it shouldn't be so. I shouldn't be so nasty. They're very strongly uh, committed to naturalism and physicalism. Mm -hmm. Again, there's this rejection of God. One rejection of God we have not really talked about. We we'll probably get to is the problem of evil. That mm -hmm. is, I think, really to my mind, about the only real problem that theism has: the problem of evil. Mm -hmm. But the point is simply, for whatever reason, they reject God. And if you reject God, you have to have some alternative if you're going to be a philosopher. And materialism seems to be it. Now, mm -hmm. in, in a theistic universe, ultimately, reality is mind because God is a mind and knows everything. And matter is a creation of some of what he knows in his mind. But if, you're if you don't believe in God, then matter has to be 
ultimate in some sense. Mm-hmm. Hey, Deeper Waters fans, Sean McDowell here. I'm a professor, writer, and a speaker. And I just want to tell you how much I appreciate and value the work of my friend Nick Peters on his podcast, Deeper Waters. He gets on some of the top guests in their field and asks them some great, practical, timely questions. I hope you enjoy and listen to the work at Deeper Waters and pass it on to a friend. Yeah, I'd like to remind everyone at this point, you're listening to a Deeper Waters podcast. Everything we do is supported by listeners like you. And if you want to support us, just go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com. And there's a link on the side, help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Okay, you click on that link, you get taken into the ministry of Risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place, dear? Yes, you have. Mike and Debbie Lacona, who run that, they're my in-laws. You make a donation, and then you uh, get in touch with me or my wife, Allie, or Mike or Debbie, and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will get that donation. It will be tax deductible. You can also buy ebooks I have written, such as A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian, and I can tell you I am currently working on an ebook response to Dawkins's Outgrowing God. I haven't entirely finished it yet, but I'm working on a response. And uh, you can also buy some that I've co-written, such as God and Natural Disasters, a debate with an atheist I did as well. Um, Groundless, a look at the work of Dan Barker, who I debated back in March. That debate's available on YouTube. Um, Christian Answers, This Generation's Questions, Defining Inerrancy, Contextualizing Inerrancy, and of course, the Mention of Bars Project, when my favorite ones. I really encourage you to look at that one. And if you can't do any of these, please go on iTunes and leave a positive review for the Deeper Waters podcast. Guys, it means so much to me. I honestly love to see those reviews. It tells me how much you love the show and you want it to keep going. And if you do love the show and you are able, please give back to us and help keep us going. If, if you enjoy the fruits of the garden... Please help assist us in harvesting. So, um, Dr. Parrish, do you have an organization or a charity you'd like to see people donate to? Well, um, yeah, it's sort of unusual, but uh, uh, my wife was a missionary in Pakistan, missionary doctor in Pakistan for 18 years. It's actually pronounced Pakistan, but, mm-hmm. and it's the Christian Hospital at Tank, T-A-N-K, that mm-hmm. is a Christian organization out in the boonies of Pakistan near the Afghan border where they're the only decent medical help and the only Christian witness in the entire, well, about 100 miles perhaps in any direction. Mm-hmm. My work, like my wife works there. It worked, like I said, for 18 years. Since she married me, she goes back there every January and February for two months to work. And they need all the support they can get. Mm-hmm. So how do people go in to support that? Do you have a website or something? Um, yeah, I think they do have a website, uh, Christian, uh, Christian, I, I haven't looked at it a long time, Christian Hospital at Tonk, spelled mm-hmm. like tank. Um, I wish my wife was here right now. She she drifted off, <laughs> but, uh, uh, she could give you more, um, uh, she works for World Mission Prayer League in Minnesota, mm-hmm. uh, which is a Lutheran organization that runs for missions, uh, and they are the ones who center there. And so that's another one you could, uh, they're in Minneapolis, 
mm-hmm. World Mission Prayer League, if they're interested in looking at it. Okay. Well, let's get back to the book, Finn, here. And we talk, you talk some also about ethics. And this yes. one is a very important one. And I say when I talked with atheists, usually it's amazing that they are claimed to be more relativists. All morality is relative. It doesn't really matter. And then they'll start complaining about how bad the God of the Old Testament is. And I'm thinking, yeah. do, do you not see the disconnect here? Yeah. No, I agree with you. I mean, that's what I sort of what I was saying before. Simply, they deny real morality, but they can't live like it, like there is a morality. It's, it goes against human nature to say that nothing is wrong or immoral, mm-hmm. right? It, it's not consistent on their part, but, you know, human beings often aren't consistent. Right. Um, but it's a real problem for atheists, in my opinion. It, uh, in, my, in the book, and in the book I'm theoretically writing, uh, I divide reality into two, three different sections: anti-realism, weak realism, and strong or robust realism. Um, anti-realism is basically that. There is no morality. Everything is just made up. Um, that, I think, is obviously wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, we have the strong, if, if nothing else, we have the strong intuitive feel that certain things are right and wrong, even if we dis- may disagree exactly what they are. Weak realism tries to build morality on human nature or rationality or something. They believe there's some sort of objective ethics, but in my opinion, you know, uh, they actually collapses back into anti-realism because it just, it's a decision to make, right? It's a decision. Yes, mm-hmm. I will act as, you know, uh, according to the categorical imperative like Kant, or I will act to the greatest good for the greatest number like uh, like. Uh, uh, Utilitarianism, yeah. but ultimately they're built on a non-moral active yeah. uh, active acceptance. Right? Yeah. I will ex- I will accept this morality, but there's no morality or immorality in accepting that morality. Mm-hmm. The third third is robust or strong realism, and this is morality exists outside of us and exists whether they like it or not. Mm-hmm. To, again, two different two different theories, basically a Platonism and then theism. Platonism holds that. Morality exists. It is out there. You know, it's wrong to torture innocent people for fun. And of course, I totally agree with that. But it's just there. It's the truth, not made by anybody. Mm-hmm. And I say that is wildly implausible that there could be in an impersonal universe. There's abstract laws out there governing the ideas of human beings. After all, human beings and persons and atheism are just sort of this weird, uh, weird uh, development of evolution. So that leads us back to theism, moral laws ultimately come from the mind of God and are based on his nature. Mm-hmm. So, and the thing is, I think in all, in the, in the final analysis, just about everybody will agree, you know, really thinks that our things are right and wrong. Yeah, I, I remember talking at the poor here at our apartment complex with some neighbors once, we were talking about studying some philosophy and looking at ethics and they seem to favor a consequentialist approach. I, I think you had John Stuart Mill in mind with that one. And I said, okay, let me just ask you this question, okay? There's this island where there's been a crash, and there's all these people are stuck on this island together. And all the men, there's 50 men and one woman, and all mm. men decide they need to pass on the species, and where... In order to ensure the good, the greatest good for most of the people, they always said, where we need to rape this woman, or heck, maybe not just one woman, maybe ten women, say like we need to rape these women so that 
if a species can continue here, we can all keep surviving. And even if we don't, well, hey, we'd rather have a fun here, and that's our greater good. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you deny there was an objective or absolute morality, you mm -hmm. end up basically saying, in the end, there's nothing really that's unthinkable. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's obviously wrong, although I got arguments. You know, the mere fact that we understand what ethics is, that we have an intuitive knowledge of ethics, just like we do of beauty, indicates that it actually it's a, it's a, it's a modal sphere of reality. But it, using Herman Duryevin's philosophy, I'm not a Duryevian by any means, but he had the idea, if you ever read the uh, uh, New Critique of Theoretical Thought in four, four volumes, that um, reality is divided into different spheres of existence. You know, matter is one, logic is one, um, mathematics is one, but also morality and beauty have their own spheres of existence. Mm -hmm. They're all equally real, but they all ultimately have the same source. Mm -hmm. And I find it just, well, when we talk with <clears throat> atheists, the ultimate denial of so much of real thinking about ethical theory, like so many think, well, you know, all these Christians have is they just go by what the Bible says, and that determines right or wrong. And I just want to say, have you never read anything rewritten? Because, of course, Christians go by what the Bible says, but that's not where we do most of our ethical thinking entirely. No. Well, I think, again... Just to be a human being, to be a person, mm -hmm. you have the intuitive idea that he, that ethics exists. And, of course, you know, the Bible says a lot of things. You know, the Old Testament law and the New Testament, and all this has to be codified and rationalized. You know, is anything, is what is ever in the Old Testament, what in the Old Testament, is it all binding on Christians? Today, most, most people would say not the Old Testament laws. Mm -hmm. um, but we do have an objective morality, mm -hmm. and it's revealed to us by God in the Bible, although exactly how it fits in every particular situation, of course, might take work. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the thing is, of course, certain things are pretty obvious, right? Should you uh, kill your neighbor because you find is a, you, you don't like the way he looks? You know, obviously not, right? Mm -hmm. uh, thou shalt not commit murder, mm -hmm. and so on. Yeah, uh, although if, if someone is interested in looking at the Old Testament law, almost, we did have John Wharton on the show recently, talking about his book, For the Lost World of a Torah, so that's an interesting, like, if someone wants to look at And something else we can yeah. say about this, as well with this kind of argument, is that not only do we know these objective laws exist, but there seems to be some authority behind them. As if, say, if we do something that we shouldn't do, we have objectively wronged someone, and we are subject to judgment. Yes, yeah, and that's one thing, of course, that any atheist theory, any atheistic theory doesn't have, even ones who do claim that there are as a robust ethics, there is no authority behind it, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's not that nobody makes the laws, it just happened for some bizarre reason to be true, and nobody enforces the laws if people break them, you know, mm -hmm. so that you need theism for. Yeah, uh, I know me and Dawkins' book about how, you know, maybe we don't need the security camera in the sky to be good. And yeah, I was like, well, let's just, you know, take a look and visit, oh, I don't know, maybe communist Russia under Stalin and all these other empires. 
See, you know, if you take away God, ultimately a lot of people will think they are God because you have to have some yeah. sort of replacement for God. And if there is no God above you to judge you, and there is no afterlife for you, all you have is just this one world. Well, geez, why on earth not? Yeah. No, I think, yeah, it's a, it's a problem for them, a very large problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why, you know, in godless, um, but, all, but in godless regimes, you get the idea that human beings are the ultimate and we make the rules and therefore whatever we say goes. But to be fair, of course, there are some concepts of God that have led to mass slaughters. We, yeah. Of course, they have the wrong concept of God. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like Tamerlane mm-hmm. during the Middle Ages, uh, according to the sword of Islam, the conqueror of the world, is <laughs> estimated he murdered or he had killed 17 million people, 5% of the population of that time. Mm-hmm. So it's not, you just, it not only have to have a God, you have to have the right God. Mm-hmm. Of course, along those lines, I find it interesting that. So many athe- along those lines, if I interest in so many atheists, such as a uh, Sam Harris said he started writing some of his books on atheism when nine eleven occurred, and yet it's like Luxon says, okay, nine eleven occurred, Muslims did this. Let's write a book against Christianity. Yeah, that makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, first of all, of course, you know, it was yes, it was Muslims, but uh, you know, most Muslims I think do not approve of that. Mm-hmm. I think most of most, you know, uh, so it's. Well, the ultimate blame is something you'd have to discover. But, of course, yeah, you're right. When they do that, they attack Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you see about this, you know, it, it's, just, it's just bizarre, the political correctness going on, that any any attempt to criticize Muslims or Islam is considered bad. You know, put you as somehow a, you know, a, a bigger hated, hater, uh, a phobe, some sort, or racist. But anybody can say anything you want about Christianity. Yeah. Yeah, my wife yep. was asking me something about this today. And said, so why is it that, because we saw David Wood talking about a video critiquing Islam that the BBC apparently was behind. And they stood their grounds and they were asked about it. It was something about uh, temporary marriages in Islam. And she said, well, you know, why is it that we have all these stories about Catholic priests and we don't go and do that, but... So many Muslim organizations will go and complain about them. And I said, well, honey, probably it because they know that many of the news stations will listen to them because the Muslims will kill them if they don't. Yeah. I think I think a lot of it is simply this. Um, simply, uh, modern atheism and uh, secularism, naturalism, grew up in a, in a Christian society, mm-hmm. all right? I mean, yeah. over the last few hundred years. And for them, it's just sort of part of simply that Christianity is the enemy, mm-hmm. all right? Now, I have to something a little bit, because I grew up a Protestant in a Protestant home in a, in a society, in a neighborhood, I mean, that was largely Catholic. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mother, you know, basically descended from Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland Protestants, uh, really didn't like the Catholic Church. Now I have, you know, I, I most of my friends were Catholic because that basically mm-hmm. what they were. But I grew up sort of with the attitude that, in some sense, Catholics were the enemy. Now I have nothing against Catholics. You know, there's things like Catholicism I don't agree with, certainly. But um, I think that's it. Uh, they, they, naturalism, the atheism, the secularism in, in modern society has been so long 
oriented toward being anti-Christian that they, 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 you know, even when Christians aren't doing anything bad, they naturally sort of blame us. Mm-hmm. While other religions, right, like Islam or maybe Buddha or Hinduism, they give a free ride to, no, yeah. matter, no matter what happens. And at the same time, also, I think a lot of atheists unknowingly have a sort of, what I call, background Christianity. So they'll look at something like slavery and say, oh, yes, of course, slavery was wrong. Okay, good, glad you agree. Why? And they don't realize that got so many of these values that they think are, you know, just something that everyone obviously knows. They weren't obviously known until Christianity came along. Yeah. Well, I know. This was David Borg, I think, or Brog, I forget your name. His book, In Defense of Faith, mm-hmm. basically talking about Harris and these other guys. Said they, uh, they were born on top of the mountains and I think they ascended the heights by themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, I think, is true of these people. Let's talk some, definitely, though, about evil. Because if there's something that we can understand leading some people to embrace atheism, not saying it's right, but it's understandable, it's evil. Is evil the problem of evil? Yes. Well, yeah, again, that I think that is the biggest problem um, for um, theism. Simply, if God is, you know, and this has been put classically by Hume and a lot of other people all the way back to Lucretius, mm-hmm. back in the Roman Empire days, Simply, if God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good, why is there evil in this world, or why is there so much evil in the world? And, of course, this is, puts us in a problem because, you know, we don't know why all the evil exists. Mm-hmm. We don't know why every bad thing that ever happens exists. Yeah. We just, um, we have example. you know, we uh, we have reasons for thinking, uh, you know, we have good reasons for thinking that God exists, but we don't quite understand why there's the amount of evil and suffering in the world. Yeah. I mean, the question is, you know, the idea is, of course, if you were God, would you make a world like this? Of course, without trying to be facetious, I say, I'll go, when I'm God, I'll tell you. But <laughs> the thing is, um, uh, I like I, my fat. thing is, what? I like fat. You like fat, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that was that was not original with me. I'm not exactly who, who said it originally, but yeah. Um, when I'm God, I'll tell you. My, but, but the thing is, um, my thing is, the human race is worth creating, and all the other creatures mm-hmm. in the world, like cats, were worth creating. <laughs> um, it's, in other words, the human race, as flawed and sinful as it is, intrinsically flawed and sinful as it is, was still worth creating. And but when you have creatures like us, who are in fact morally total, totally depraved, um, you know, listen, well, you know how human beings are, um, that you're going to have a world like this. Now, the thing is, yes, is this a complete explanation why God allows every single thing bad to happen? And the answer is uh, no. Um, but um, I think atheism has a worse problem with evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the basic goes back to the simply that on them, everything, for most atheists, everything is ultimately a matter of chance. Right. right, and if why it's, it's why is it why is there a ordered universe that was in the eyes of the universe the universe came into being and is ordered mm-hmm. are infinitesimal and that it stays in order are infinitesimal and that minds arose in it for no particular reason is infinitesimal mm-hmm. right and that we have the feelings like you do like pain and so on that's in, that's infinitesimal so in other words yeah we don't know, know perfectly why God allows all the evil of the world to do but we have some idea but on atheism. The idea there's a world like this, it just so, well, the odds against it are infinitesimal, like I said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I keep going back to the quote from Dawkins' Revival of Eden that 
the universe is just the way it is if we would if it, we what? thought the universe is the way we would expect if there was no God. That there's no good, no evil, no meat point, no meaning, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Well, and, that's yeah. that's really silly. I mean, yeah. first of all, the I mean, going to I'm not an expert on the fine tuning argument, but what I'm going to say is simply, if the laws of the universe were not such <laughs> that the universe, you know was exa- almost exactly the way it was mm-hmm. with all these different laws and constants there would be no intelligent life on mm-hmm. the universe or maybe no universe at all no life at all mm-hmm. second I would not expect conscious beings to rise out mm-hmm. of matter right if the universe is just matter moving around and bumping into each other and blowing up and turning green and all this kind of stuff mm-hmm. I would not expect all of a sudden for no particular reason consciousness to arise out of it mm-hmm. and I would not expect creatures who are rational and uh, intentional and subjective and all this other stuff who know about morality and our beauty, I would not expect a word like that to be either. Mm-hmm. So he's just he's just wrong. Yeah. At the same time, I, I think part of the thing with the problem of evil is we have this kind of built-in idea in our universe for our thinking that we think if God's there, our lives should be good and happy and full of so many wonderful things. And when things go wrong in our world... Well, God's not doing his job, what he's supposed to do. And doesn't that seem like a huge presupposition to bring to the question? Yeah, it does. I mean, yeah, the idea that God sort of owes us anything. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, again, uh, exactly why God created a world like this rather than some other world, you know, like one where there's a, I have a, you know, I'm, have a ten million dollar Swiss bank account or something yeah. is uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, it, we don't know why there's so much evil. Why it exists exactly this this reason? But we have uh, faith that God will is working it out toward good. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, there's a lot of things. I think I bring this in the in the in the. I mentioned this in the book. You notice that the island of Britain is sort of shaped like a hare standing on its hind legs, mm. sort of. Uh huh. The little fluffy tail on the back, yeah. where you know, the, the paws are whales and things, and the ears are Scotland. Uh huh. Right. Why is why is Britain shaped like that, right? Why is why is the moon so far away from what it is? Why are there eight planets in the solar system or nine if you count Pluto, right? Why mm-hmm. is everything the way? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know why everything is. We don't know why we have cats and you know instead of some other kind of animal, right? We we, we there's so much we just have no clue as to why it is the way it mm-hmm. is. So I think basically with regard to a lot of evil, we're in the same boat. Yeah, my wife struggles a lot with depression and. Sometimes just this past week, uh, we were in the living room one evening, and she said to Mac, you know, I don't deserve you. And I said, you know what, honey? You're right. You don't. That's why you should see me as a gift. That's why you should see everything as a gift, because, you know, if we all got what we deserve, well, we would all be in trouble. And once you get rid of that idea of that you don't really deserve anything, then... Everything you get, in some sense, becomes a gift. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it, it, life is a gift. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes you wish for different uh, gifts in it, yeah. but this is what we have. The existence is a gift. The fact that we're conscious and so on. Um, yeah, but someone could That's be true. someone could be listening to this right now, and they're very going through the problem of evil, and they're thinking, you know, this all sounds good. Maybe when you're talking about philosophy and things of that sort, but 
it's not really helping me right now in the suffering that I'm involved in. I mean, what can be done in my suffering, and why doesn't God come in and help me in my suffering? I mean, what would you say to such a person? Well, that, that counts for counseling, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and that's something I'm not really an expert at. Yeah. Uh, my father-in-law was a, was a retired pastor. would be much better at that. And mm-hmm. the thing is, I, I guess you can say that simply, no matter how bad things are, and they can get pretty bad, yeah. Yeah, this life is not the end. That God is working toward everything, toward good mm-hmm. for those who love God yeah. uh, and called according to His purpose, as it says in Romans. Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes doing the right thing to being strong just requires you know, well, being strong. You just have to put up with things mm-hmm. and put your hope and faith in God that things are working out. And that's about all I can say. Yeah, I, I think if. If someone is really suffering from a problem with fever right now, this kind of conversation probably isn't going to be the most helpful thing for them. It's more likely to get help for to get a good counselor, a good therapist, a good pastor who understands these right. kinds of issues. It, but I've had this saying before that if I've told guys I've done some teaching and training, I've said, look, if you're every pastor at a church one day, and you have a mother comes in to see you, and she's crying suddenly, and she says, My teenage son just died in a car accident. Why did God let this happen? I said, If you become a philosopher and apologist at that moment, I will come over and I will smack you there. She does not need an argument at that point. She's not asking a question from intellectual. She just wants a hug some comfort, anything. Now, it could be maybe like a couple of months or so down the line, she's in a more stable position, she'll come and say, okay, I really want to know, I'm trying to figure this in my worldview, why does God allow something like that to happen? Okay, that's the time to be a philosopher and an apologist. But when yeah. she comes to you and she's in tears at the moment, don't be a philosopher. Yeah. Well, I know, it's, it, yeah. Don't be, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, like I said, my wife, has worked as a doctor in Pakistan mm. um, over there. And believe me, our troubles over here compared to what they have over there oh, as far gosh. as disease and things are just, mm. we're, we're so much better off than there. And, you know, and yet they, mm. says there, there are a lot of good people over there. You know, they don't have the same faith that we do, but a lot of them, and they're very appreciative and very grateful for anything that my wife and the other physicians there have done. Uh, but, you know, it just, they have put up things like uh, rickets, and uh, uh, she had one case of, of she had this leprosy, and another case of somebody who had uh, what uh, bitten by a rabid dog, and there was nothing. Oh, it, it, it just you know they they babies die there frequently. You know she's over there trying to help them, mm-hmm. and uh, but again compared to what we have, compared to what we have in this country, they, they're just really uh, not well off. Um, I'm I'm not sure if you've ever read it, but this February I had a. Craig and Medina Keener on, talking about their book, Impossible Love, how they wound up getting married, and his wife, Medina, lived in the Congo for quite a while, and they'd have to go and eat rats at times, and had absolutely nothing, and yet, overall, the founder of their, their family, the head, the patriarch, Medina's father, he had more faith, more trust in God, I'd say, than most of us do combined. And you yeah. read that and you think, 
What the heck am I... Why don't I trust God like this guy does? He has so little. I have so much. And yet, if uh, if the cable goes out here or something... Oh, jeez. Why does this always happen? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yes. I guess in a way we're spoiled. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're spoiled. We've had... Mm-hmm. You know, in this way, there's a sort of a problem of our society... Mm-hmm. What do you do when you've won? Yeah. <laughs> in a sense, because in a sense, we have we have conquered most material problems. We don't rarely have to worry about starving to death. We yeah. have a lot of material comforts. We have a lifespan that's much longer than it has been historically. Mm-hmm. What do you do with yourself? You know, when you when you, all these uh, challenges have been conquered. Yeah, yeah. I I find also that sometimes when I'm in the midst of suffering, I actually tell people, you know, this is one of the worst times to be an apologist. You really to have. The theological background, because it would be so easy many times to look and say, you know what, there just is no God, or God's really a monster, or things like that, but it's kind of, I look and say, unfortunately for me, in many of these times, I feel trapped because my theology tells me, and my rationality tells me, if there's a good God, and here's all these reasons why, and yet here's what I'm going through, and think, okay, I have to put all this suffering going on right now, with God being good, that's a problem, because it's more often how C.S. Lewis said, your real fear is not that God doesn't exist, it's that God does exist, and this is what he's really like. Yeah, I think C.S. Lewis says something like that in um, in uh, A Grief Observed, Yes, right? Not that God doesn't exist, mm-hmm. but that God just doesn't really care, or doesn't mm-hmm. care very much or something. Yeah. And... Uh, well, again, I think counseling is the best thing to do for that. But again, it comes down to your your, your idea of God. Yeah. You have the idea that God exists is perfectly good, even though we have no idea what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, people have often done bad things in the name of God. But I don't think that their real um, mm. motivation was usually that of God. Yeah. I spoke about Tamerlane, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, he, he's supposed to be the sword of Islam, but most of the people... Most of the people he killed were Muslims, mm-hmm. right? I think he was just mainly interested in power and, and and domination and things like that. And maybe just like killing people, I don't know. But to be God gets blamed for a lot of things. So he's not in, you know, mm-hmm. that that he's not, uh, he's not responsible for in a sense, right? Yeah. A lot of people get turned off by church mm-hmm. or by, you know, having a, a father or mother is religious but acts like a jerk, mm-hmm. right, to be put, you know, put it simply. Um and that's not God. Yeah. Well, let's talk then about some expectations for this book as a whole. Um, sadly, when I encounter many internet atheists, there seems to be this huge reluctance on their part, and sadly, the same thing for many Christians, to read anything that dares disagree with him whatsoever. So, I sadly suspect a lot of atheists probably won't read your book, but how would, if they do say, okay, I'm going to give you this book a shot, what do you, what's the, is there any outcome you have hope for them other than, you know, the obvious one, please become theists and eventually Christians? I mean, what do you hope would happen when an atheist finishes this book? Well, at the very least, I would hope that he or she would recognize that the case for theism is stronger, maybe hopefully much stronger than he or she ever thought, mm-hmm. or even that there is a case for theism right. and that there are problems with atheism. Mm-hmm. Atheism, not just living problems, although they have exist, but also some serious intellectual problems mm-hmm. that affect atheism. Really, in a sense, can't explain anything. Yeah, and that's what I'm trying to get at. Uh, again, when you write books like this, you're mostly preaching to the choir. Yeah. You know, 
And I think that's true of both the Christians and also the atheists. Most of the books read, read, read by, written by atheists are read mainly by atheists. Mm-hmm. Um, people like to read mainly to reinforce their prejudices. Unfortunately. But I hope that you know some people at least have an open mind, even if they disagree with me, that they, if they're atheists or non-Christians, to read the book, yep. to look at it, consider it. Yeah, I, I can definitely say that usually when I get a book, one of the first things I check is the bibliography. And looking, I want to see how much did this writer interact with what disagrees with him. When I read the New yeah. Atheist, it's very, very little. When I read Christians, on the other hand, be it New Testament or philosophy or science or anything like that, it's quite extensive. I notice the difference immediately. And I can definitely say in your book, you do write, I think, on both a layman level and an academic level. There's some academic stuff in there, but... That's okay. A lot of laymen will get enough out of a book that they can walk away and be able to dialogue better with their friends who are atheists. Yeah, I'm hoping that. Um, that's what the book I wrote the book for, you know, besides the fact my wife told me to write it, <laughs> write it, but also she asked me to write it simply because for those reasons. Mm-hmm. Right? We went through these heavy t- academic books that are not going to be read by normal people. And said, "Why can't you bring this down so ordinary people can read mm-hmm. the same the same thing?" Mm-hmm. Um, and I tried. I've tried to read. You know, I kept out the uh, the popular, the new atheists, the Dawkins and Hitchens and the peace people, because I really, in a sense, like I said, they've already been responded to many different times with many people. Mm-hmm. But also, I don't think they're all that good. And I tried to get into the rare roots of it. And this is why I have a you know I have a nearly six hundred. 600 things in my um, in my bibliography and uh, I've been thinking about this matter for nearly 50 years mm-hmm. and I'm hoping that I learn something and I can press that on to people mm-hmm. if they read the book yeah well right now we don't have really enough time to get into any more questions on it so I think it's best we just start wrapping things up here, the book is Atheism, A Critical Analysis. Now, at the time of this recording, it's available on Amazon. The paperback is $20.30, and the Kindle version is $9.99. Now, Dr. Paris, do you have a blog, an email, a website, a way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? I do not have a blog. I do not have a website because I am, well... Let's say not really great with machines. Yeah, <laughs> very, very proper. Yeah, well, I'm mean, you know I think I, it may, you know, machines hate me. Let me put it that mm-hmm. way. I do have a uh, my email is Stephen S T E P H E N dot Parish P A R R I S H at C U A A dot E D U. That's my work phone mm-hmm. at with Concordia University in Ann Arbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they suggest mm-hmm. that I start a website, but you know I, I've been looking at it, but I've been busy with a lot of other things. You know, for the book, what a website about the book, and by that and the fact that I have really no clue about how to go about doing that, mm-hmm. but maybe we'll get one up eventually. I think that'd be an excellent idea sometime. Um, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave today for a Deeper Waters audience? Well, um, I just hope that people can read it and get some use out of it. Mm-hmm. Christians to reinforce them and give them more, you know. Ammunition in their in their in their interactions with atheists. Atheists maybe can see that the, you know their case is not as strong as they once thought. Um, but for me, I, I just I've been thinking about these matters for like I said, nearly fifty years, and I just want to put down simply and readably what the conclusions I've come to. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm I'm hoping that people appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Well, Except get something. Well, Doctor Parrish, it's been great having you on talk about these matters, and I hope we'll see you back here again sometime. Okay, very good. Hopefully, it won't be such a problem getting things going. Mm-hmm. Not to mind everyone, but next week, if you're here, we are going to be talking about Stranger Things. Michael Heiser is going to be with us, looking at his book, The World Turned Upside Down, Finding the Gospel in Stranger Things. For now, I'm Nick Peters, I affirm the virgin birth, and I'm signing off. <laughs>